Julie. Welcome to Saltier Politics. I'm really happy to see you. How are you doing? I'm great. You've been traveling. I was recently taking a side gig and I show ran a show in North Carolina for the Design Network called Couched with Carson Cressley. So that was a whole new experience and, and fun. How's Carson Cressley? He seems cool. He was hilarious. He also uh, actually recently won an Emmy for RuPaul's Drag Race. So before the show, he'd be pumping up in his dressing room with RuPaul and Todrick Hall, different music, and it was really fun. I kind of secretly, not so secretly, because I'm talking about it, love RuPaul's music. I love RuPaul. It's so good. It's, it's so actually good. my ringtone. It is. Sissy That Walk is my ringtone, and hilarious. I love it. hilarious. That's awesome. You need little things to lighten your day. I've been um, I've been kind of an election hell. There's a bunch of um, legislative races that I'm working on, um, and I've been chained to my desk for the last, I don't know, couple of weeks. Um what happened while you were gone. We had a little um, to-do with Ronan Farrow, uh, where he uh, very graciously had a conversation um, with me and a few other women about NDAs and, and, and sort of... Wait, I'm reading this book right now. Yes. I'm, I'm halfway, How is more it? than half... I'm enjoying the hell out of it. I actually downloaded an audiobook while I was on this trip and have been listening to it during all my runs right. and all that. And... I, the cover up is just cover up with what? With, uh, well, with Weinstein, how NBC kind of helped push that. Please tell me as much. I'm obsessed right now. Oh, well, I mean, I haven't read the book. I have nothing to say about that. Um, all I, we just had a very nice discussion about, um, my view that I think companies that organizations generally that move on, um, from allegations of sexual harassment to me or, or sexual assault or retaliation or any of that, um, how organizations that truly move on from that um, should not subject women um, to NDAs generally. Uh, and this applies to every organization, political organizations, media organizations. Um, I've had to sign several NDAs um, in the course of my career. And generally, I'm not a fan of NDAs as it relates to bad behavior. I'm a fan of NDAs when it comes to proprietary information. Um, certainly if I signed an NDA, let's say you hypothetically you work for Donald Trump's presidential campaign, he made everybody sign NDAs. To me, there's a role for NDAs in terms of not disclosing polling information or strategy. Um, but when it comes to bad behavior that you've witnessed um, in organizations, I think it's very important that people understand that NDAs just muzzle people, typically women. And so we had a nice discussion about that, and he was very understanding about that. Um, and was a good guy. So uh, thank you, Ronan Farrow, for for hearing me out on that subject because it's one that's very near and dear to my heart um, with respect to several things. So that was the big event this week for me. Um, and short of that, I really don't have any travel plans coming up. How about you now that you got back from North Carolina? I am just working my butt off with regular work. Yeah, you and me both. God, it's really, it's been super busy. It's like, I feel like the summer went away and now it's getting into craziness and the holidays cannot come soon enough so that we can take a little break as it's, well. Right. It's much like New York weather. There's no like in between, like, let's get right into it phase. Now it'll just get cold. Totally. Freezing. You're absolutely right. All right. Due to popular demand, we're going to be adding a mini clapback-esque segment to the podcast. Um, Julie, uh, let's let's get right into it. Oh, God. All right. So, because they're really good. Yeah, some of these are really good. I'm, I'm so glad the clapback is back. And thank you for ever, to everybody for commenting uh, on the website and telling us that you like the clapback segment because now, thanks to you, it is back by popular demand. So 
Marco Rubio of Florida, your home state, your home state senator, Emily, you own him. Oh, stop. Marco Rubio of uh, Emily's home state of Florida. Stop. Let me stress that again. <laughs> tweeted something uh, on October 24th at 8.37 a.m. Two things are, this is Marco Rubio, two things are true. There's only been one man ever who will always, who was always right and deserves blind loyalty and his name was Jesus and... No matter what a Republican does, the left will never be fair to them. What they want is Republicans who will douse themselves in kerosene and light a match. I feel like right now I'm hitting the launch button. And Julie, So I responded, two (laughs) things are true. Marco Rubio tweets about Jesus in order to distract from the fact that he has offered the president blind loyalty despite what he knows are the president's many impeachable offenses. And sticking it to the libs is more important than doing it his job so what drives me crazy is marco rubio always tweets scripture and that's great and i'm very happy that he does that except that sometimes it seems like a big subtweet to donald trump (laughs) so marco rubio rather than being passive aggressive and subtweeting donald trump you might just want to call him out like directly like i don't blindly worship donald trump because he's not jesus and he doesn't deserve it. And here's how I don't blindly worship him. Exhibit A, I think he's wrong on Ukraine. Exhibit B, I think he's wrong on Syria. Exhibit C, I think he's wrong to be shaking down Joe Biden. I don't care. What, exhibit D, I don't like his socks. Whatever you think you're not showing blind loyalty to Marco Rubio, maybe call him out as opposed to subtweeting him about I, Jesus. I would like to point out exhibit A through Z, though, which is a spine. And it seems like... He has I, none. Yeah. Um... And then somebody literally writes back, well, you're right on the second point, which I guess is sticking to the libs is more important than doing his job. Uh, Somebody named Snickers at DLingo73 wrote, oh no, I'm sorry, John Cranston, true patriot, uh, 16, right back, well, you're right on the second point, kudos, which is sticking to the libs is more important than anything else, than doing doing your job. Wait, I found a better one. What's that? Julie constantly tweets about Republicans because of her OCD, and now her Russian anti-religion roots are not only showing but screaming. So <laughs> I can't. So it's so bad. It's so bad. OCD. I think. I think meaning like like like, like I'm obs- criticizing Republicans. Like I've got that's like, like <laughs> I've got like obsessive compulsive disorder and on 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 criticizing Republicans. Like some people wash their hands all the time, and I just <laughs> criticize Republicans. <laughs> He's not wrong. Um, I might be critical of Republicans. I don't know. I just, I just basically defended <laughs> Kellyanne Conway on this podcast. But, right. But uh, uh, I might be critical of Republicans because they don't show any spine to a crazy man who is subverting everything Marco Rubio is for. Remember when Marco Rubio was this like foreign policy hawk and basically said that, uh, oh, I don't know, you have to do more abroad and be engaged. Like everything that he stood for, Donald Trump has trampled on. And little Marco, which is the only thing that Donald, I'll defend a Republican. Donald Trump was right, little Marco, little Marco. Um, And secondly, my Russian anti-religion roots are not only showing, but screaming. I remember you uh, not eating on Yom Kippur. Yeah, buddy, you try starving for 25 hours on Yom Kippur, and then Emily and I (laughs) went up for dinner afterwards, and I had one, I broke my fast with some vodka, like a good Russian. I know. Before I had any food, and you you tried doing that on an empty stomach, buddy, thanks to religion. Literally, we just proved that person wrong. We did, but I will also say, uh, uh, this is not a knock on Jesus. Right. (laughs) It is a knock 
on people who use Jesus in order to detract from their jobs. I mean, if Marco Rubio wants to go and join the priesthood, I'm sure the Catholic Church would welcome him with open arms. But he is a United States senator. We don't live in a theocracy. So do your job. I'm not suggesting that he doesn't talk about scripture. I'm saying that he consistently, consistently uses scripture and Jesus to constantly subtweet Donald Trump, which is like the coward's way out. And Emily, I don't know what's going on in your home state and why the people of Florida put up with this man, but something's got to give down there because this is insane. Either get somebody who's going to just come out there and say, like Lindsey Graham does, I am Donald Trump's. Uh, well, that's our governor, you know, DeSantis. Yeah, but I mean, either come out and right. just say that. Either come out right. and say, I am going to do whatever Donald Trump says because he's right about everything and I am wrong about everything, Lindsey Graham, that I have everything I've ever stood for, I have been wrong about. Jesus Christ and Donald Trump have shown me the truth, the way, and the light and know from now on I will follow everything Donald Trump says, which is effectively how he is voting and what he's doing. Or call him out. Just call him out. It's not that hard. I called out Barack Obama all the time when I was a Fox. I know people don't believe that, but I'm sure I could find clip after clip that showed that I did. I certainly did on Russia when I thought he was wrong. And what I don't understand is why Marco Rubio doesn't do that. You're a co-equal branch of government, Senator Rubio. Are you truly worried that he's going to fund a primary against you? I mean, when... The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. I, Martin Luther King paraphrased that statement. And I truly believe it. It's a long career for you, Marco Rubio. And when you are up again, Donald Trump's not going to be that popular anymore if he's even still in office. So just don't worry about it. Or what's, what's more, I mean, if you truly are that religious and you truly believe that there's something more important than your job than politics, then you have to understand that your morals and your beliefs as you feel that Jesus espouses them do not comport with Donald Trump. So stand up and say so. I mean, I don't want to look into Marco Rubio's heart. I don't want to be, you know, I don't, I don't like psychoanalyzing people based on their religion. But it seems to me that if there are things that Marco Rubio said deserve blind loyalty, and, those, and that is Jesus Christ, things that there's one person that deserves blind loyalty and that's Jesus Christ, then stop showing it to Donald Trump. Just say it. His okay. name is Donald Trump. That's who you're talking about. And sticking it to the libs is not more important. By the way, liberals do not want you guys, to, Republicans, to douse themselves on fire and kerosene. They just, or at least I'll speak for myself, I just want you to at least stand for what you stood for. Oh, I don't know. In the Republican primaries when you ran against Donald Trump. Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, all you people. Just stand for that. You know this man is toxic. So just say so. If enough of you say so, he can't go after all of you. Strength in numbers. Get a backbone. Get together. Go to some AA-type group meeting and talk about it. But do something. Because you know it's wrong. That's the part that drives me crazy. They know it's wrong. Donald right. Trump is a dope, as I keep saying. He doesn't even realize what he's doing. They know they know what they're doing, and they don't care. They'd rather put their own career, and in Marco Rubio's case, he's acting like a coward, and it's absurd, and it's embarrassing, and he's got to stop. So there's my clap back. A woman to that. Thank you. All right. So what's um, going on this week? Well, I wanted, 
Uh, a tweet. I wanted to start with a tweet you did uh, defending Jessica Tarloff. I um, love Jesse Tarloff. But pretty much uh, the tweet was criticizing Jess's tone as opposed to the content. Actually, it was Jesse's voice. Voice. Um, yeah. Which I don't find anything wrong with. But having been in Jesse's shoes, literally, not her shoes, but literally been, uh, you know, on that couch and outnumbered, which is what. Um, Ironically, she was being criticized by Juanita Broderick. And let me just preface this by saying the following. Juanita Broderick made um, serious rape allegations against Bill Clinton. They, I, I didn't really focus on, it's not that I didn't focus on them at the time um, that she made them, but I was younger and, and I think much more naive about how things work. They actually sound credible to me. So this is not a slam at Juanita Broderick and everything she's gone through. Um, but Juanita Broderick is in the public eye f- because of what happened to her, and she's been very outspoken about it. And to me, if you're a woman, it really this doesn't apply to women, but it especially galls me when women do it to other women. If you don't like what comes out of Jesse Tarloff's mouth on Outnumbered, which is what Juanita Broderick, I think, should have been critical of, then feel free to criticize her. God knows when I sat on that Outnumbered couch, I got hateful tweet after hateful tweet. But what I find so incredibly offensive is when people criticize other people and women criticize other women for their looks or the sound of their voice or their hair or whatever reason. Um, As you know, uh, because you worked on Outnumbered, I really gave Chris Christie, Governor Christie of New Jersey, a very hard time um, when I was on that couch, almost every day. What I never did was be critical of Chris Christie's looks. Um, I really don't like Donald Trump. I'm very critical of Donald Trump. I have never been critical of Donald Trump's looks. And the reason for that is because I don't think that has anything to do with anything. I think you're born the way you're born and what you choose to do with your looks, um, if you have any choice at all, is up to you. And that shouldn't reflect on what people think about you. Um, if you're a supermodel and you're super hot, I don't think that's a credit to you or your personality. And if you're a politician and you're really overweight or you're really unattractive, um, that should not be a detriment to you. Jesse is fantastic on every level. Um, and I don't just, just say that because she, uh, and I agree politically, which we do. I say that because she's truly one of the good guys and good, good people out there in the world. She's very kind. She's very sweet. Uh, as there are plenty of Republicans who work at Fox, this is not a this is not a Jesse um, Tarloff hey, geography because of because we agree politically. But for Juanita Broderick to go after her voice is really inappropriate. I don't think Juanita Broderick would want anybody to go after her looks. Right. Um, even if she were a supermodel, I don't think anybody would want she'd want anybody to go after her looks one way or the other. There's there's always something somebody can find that's wrong about the way you look, and. When you are on that couch on Outnumbered, which is filmed, as you know, Emily, in a very specific way to make you look much more attractive than you probably are in real life. Yeah, Yeah, but I mean, look, Fox Fox does a fantastic job with their hair and makeup and their wardrobe, and it shows. I mean, it really transforms people into into just, they do a very great job. Um, But inevitably there's always going to be somebody who's going to nitpick every part of you and it really bounced off of me I never really cared look some people thought I was too thin then some people thought I was too fat then some people thought my hair was too long some people thought my hair was too short Um, I wasn't blonde enough I was too blonde like I mean there's there's something that somebody's going to find about you so I never really had it bother me or let it bother me but I do think it says much more about you Juanita Broderick as the critic 
when you're sitting there criticizing Jesse Tarloff, you don't have a problem with Jesse Tarloff's voice. You have a problem with what Jesse Tarloff is saying. You have a problem with her figurative voice. Go ahead and criticize her. Fair game. Jesse puts herself out there every day by being on TV. Fair game to to go after Jessica Tarloff. But... And And it goes to that larger issue of discrediting women just based on their looks and not the content of what they're saying or doing, which is is needs to stop, and especially from other women. It really does, and especially, um, you know, Juanita Broderick had something very important to report. Um, she reported that she got raped by a man who at the time was not the president of the United States, but became the president of the United States, and she, didn't, she, she reported that. Um, that's a very serious allegation. When women allege that Donald Trump was har- harassing them or raped them. I mean, one of Donald Trump's responses was, well, like, look at her. Like, I'd ever, like, touch her with a 10-foot pole. I'm paraphrasing. But it was something about her looks. Uh, we know that rape is not about looks or attraction. We know it's about power. So it really is pretty irrelevant what a woman looks like. Um, but I don't think Juanita Broderick would have appreciated, nor should she have, for people pushing back against her saying, well, you know, I mean, why would Bill Clinton ever touch her with a 10-foot pole? Um, you don't do that. You you just don't do that. You that's don't. What com- Trump has been doing. That's to what women, Trump. Like- that's what Trump has been doing to women. You don't do that, Juanita Broderick. I mean, come on. And I say that as somebody who listened to your allegations really carefully and sympathizes with you. But you don't do that. You just don't do that to other women. And I really, truly hope that she takes that to heart. Um, and if she wants to criticize Jessica Tarloff or criticize anybody who's on TV, criticize them on the basis of what they are saying, not on the basis of what they look like or they sound like. Agreed. All right, moving on to our next one, which also has to do with appearance. Um, Right now in front of the Supreme Court, it was recently argued RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes, Inc. versus the Equal Opportunity Commission, a case that will decide if transgender people are entitled to sex-based protections under Title VII of the Civil Rights, 1964 Civil Rights Act. So pretty much an employee was fired from a funeral home for being transgender. Advocates for the woman who was fired are fighting for a broader view of the Title VII of Title VII in sight, evolving case law that says sexual orientation and gender identity are inherently tied to a worker's sex. I completely agree with this, but what I thought was interesting was the broader implications brought up by this Teen Vogue article, not having people dress as their gender. So... What the Trump administration is arguing in its brief is that employers can insist that men and women dress in a manner that aligns with stereotypical understandings of gender. Uh, The author of the article and her colleagues represented three girls who attended a North Carolina public charter school that required girls to wear skirts. The school allowed boys to wear pants, but argued that allowing girls to do so would undermine its goal of promoting, quote, chivalry and, quote, mutual respect between boys and girls. The women eventually secured a federal court ruling that the skirts requirement violated the Equal Protections Clause, and then the court recognized that forcing girls to dress in traditionally feminine manner had no effect on promoting respect between students, and noted that for several decades it has been socially acceptable acceptable for girls and women to wear pants. So Julie, um, pretty much same gender stereotypes hurt all of us, and, and also you having a son in, in school I mean, how do you think, I mean, the broader aspect of this? Um, it's very interesting because my son goes to an all-boys school and um, they've been grappling, obviously, as everybody has, with transgender issues. For example, what happens if uh, somebody starts to identify 
as a, as a girl in the school. And the conclusion that they came to is that they're, they are, in fact, an all-boys school, but they will work with that student. They're not going to kick somebody out because that person decides to identify as a girl, which I think is a great solution. Um, and if, if, if that girl then decides that she doesn't want to attend a school that is an all-boys school, then, then I guess that she can make that decision. But nevertheless, if somebody in my son's school wants to put on a skirt, um, I mean, they have a dress code, so. I don't know if that that fulfills a dress code, but if some let's put it this way: if my seven-year-old son decided tomorrow um, that he wanted to wear dresses or he wanted to wear skirts, uh, great. Um, it's a self-expression thing to me, and um, he could choose to do that for any number of reasons. He can a identify as a girl, which um, you know my son. I don't think I don't think is in the cards for him, but if it were, that's fine. Um, or he could just choose to do it because um, he finds that skirts are cool and, and he wants to wear a skirt. And right. if he wants to do that, um, that's totally cool with me too. And I think it's a shame. And I'll give you a better example. Forget my son. Um, we're sitting in my office right now. And, and Ian, you know, who works with me, who works for me in this capacity, I never say that, but in this capacity it's relevant. Um, if Ian wanted to show up here wearing a skirt, which would be hilarious because you've seen Ian, um, <laughs> But if Ian wanted to show up wearing a skirt, God bless. I don't care. Go right. go wear a skirt. I mean, what do I care what, what Ian does Right. Um, as long as he does his job? I don't care what he looks like. I don't care what he dresses like. I don't care what he does. Um, provided that Ian, by the way, for those people who don't know, is probably 6'4", and um, I'm not sure what his weight is, but I'm not sure that they have skirts that, that would cover up um, that, that are Ian-sized. But, um, but uh, uh, it, you know... If Ian wanted to do that, that's great. Exactly. And I don't care. And I don't care why, I don't know why people do care. Exactly. And I just don't, I think I, I think it's a whole status quo issue with the Trump administration trying to maintain certain power and give certain limitations. To well, women. Melania wears pants. I mean, she does. <laughs> that's true. Ivanka wears pants. I mean, what, why can Ivanka, I mean, look, why can Ivanka Trump show up at the White House? Not just Ivanka, Kellyanne Conway, whoever. Why can they show up at the White House wearing pants? I mean, Right. What's the big deal? I mean, I understand having a dress code in the sense that some places feel like they want they want their employees to wear ties um, or business attire. But what that business attire is from a gender perspective is irrelevant. Right. It doesn't impact the work. In fact, it makes the worker more comfortable when they can wear what they're comfortable wearing. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I wasn't going to show up wearing, you know, a tie-dye when I was on air at Fox, but I don't really think it mattered whether I wore pants or a dress. I mean, back when I was there, actually, it, it did matter. But um, I, I don't understand. I mean, I truly don't get what the issue here is. Um, and shame on the Trump administration. I mean, come on. It's like every time they have the opportunity to do the wrong thing, they take it. Right. Like, like does somebody sit around and say, what is the most offensive thing to the most largest number of people? Let's do it. And you know why we're going to do it? Just because we can. To stick it to the libs or to be iconoclasts or whatever reason. It's just annoying. Just cut it out. That's it. And yeah. So let's go on. Let's move on because pretty much it's trash. Uh, so next subject is which, Julie, I know you're going to go crazy on which i'm very excited to hear about um so right now the dems are discussing articles of impeachment against trump 
while the GOP is ignoring evidence of quid pro quo with Ukraine and are attacking the Democrats' investigation into the matter, especially Senator Graham. He's angry because he thinks the Dems are hurting the country based on how they're going about the investigation. So he's fighting the process when you don't like what's being revealed. I mean, this would be like, I don't know, Senator Graham, what if somebody tried to murder some, what if somebody committed murder? And then you're like, oh, let's not investigate the murder. Let's investigate how the police um, investigated the murder. I mean, this is so absurd. And so by the way, the murder. Yeah, you're ignoring the murder. Don't, don't look at the dead body. Let's talk about how the police are looking at the dead body. Um, Senator Graham, if you recall, Emily, maybe you don't, because how old were you in, in 98? You were a little... Eight. Like, yeah, you were eight. Um, I was not, so I remember this well. I was actually working for a congressman at the time. Uh, Senator Graham, when he was in the House, when he was Congressman Graham, was one of the leaders, one of the prosec- House prosecutors in the Clinton... Um, trial. So the House was, you know, impeached Bill Clinton, and then he was acquitted in the Senate trial. But the prosecution was prosecuted in the Senate by members of the House. And one of the lead prosecutors was then Congressman Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham thought it was A-OK to remove a president from office for lying about a consensual sexual affair under oath. Um, Lindsey Graham does not think it's A-OK to even question why the president of the United States is using, essentially allowing more people to die in Ukraine, contrary to Congress's wishes, including Senator Graham's, in order to get dirt on behalf of uh, his campaign. And what is so striking to me is that this is Lindsey Graham. Remember, Lindsey Graham was the one screaming about the Ukrainians need aid. We've got to stand up to Putin. We've got to stand up for the Kurds. We've got to stand, you know, like Lindsey Graham was the king, along with John McCain at the time, of Barack Obama's not doing enough to help the Ukrainians, and we've got to help the Ukrainians and the Russians. And by the way, he was right. Um, I think Obama did not do enough to help Ukraine at the time. Uh, did not send arms to them as he should have. But what is interesting to me is he no longer cares about that. There are people, 13,000 Ukrainians have died since Russians essentially, A, appropriated a great chunk of their land in Crimea and effectively have made Eastern Ukraine part of the war zone. And let's be very clear, and Lindsey Graham knows this because he's not a dummy. If Russia is successful in Ukraine, this will be the first land grab in Europe since World War II. And they're not going to stop. Vladimir Putin has said the biggest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century, not the Holocaust, not World War II, it was the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which is a striking, striking thing to say. So there were 15 Soviet republics. Russia was one, the largest. Ukraine was another one. And there are 13 more after that. Why would he stop at just Ukraine? Why not move on to Belarus first, Belarus next? Why not move on to the Baltics? Why not move on to the other former Soviet republics and reconstitute the Soviet Union? And in fact, what you will have, if, if Vladimir Putin's allowed to have his way, is not just a new Cold War, but why even stop there? Look what the, what, look what the Soviets tried to do in Eastern Europe. Look what they did in Poland. Look what they did in, in then Czechoslovakia. I mean, I can go on. I can, we've seen this movie before. And Lindsey Graham knows this because he's not a dope. Um, he actually, unlike Donald Trump, I think, knows his history and knows where this is going. So for Lindsey Graham to ignore this and for Lindsey Graham 
to suddenly start talking about how it's okay for the president to do this, to hold up. There's no quid pro quo. Of course there's a quid pro quo. Of course there was. But how it's okay for the president to hold up aid to the Ukrainians in exchange for dirt on Joe Biden and Joe Biden's son is absurd. Absurd. And Lindsey Graham, shame on you. You know better. I get that you want to win re-election. I get that you were worried about your numbers in the Republican primary when you were critical of Trump. I get that you've completely flipped in order to save your own butt in 2020. But aren't some things more important? It really should be because I really think, as you said, that Trump is using Ukraine kind of as a litmus test. He, how far can he get? And Sure. And so is Putin. I mean, that, Putin's using Ukraine as a litmus test. And who put this idea in Trump's head that there's some imaginary server? By the way, have these people never heard of the cloud? Like, there's no server, dopes. Everything's on a cloud right now. But there's some imaginary server that the, that the Ukrainians were the ones that hacked into the DNC and somehow stole their server, which is in Ukraine. Who does that dumb theory benefit? And by the way, a theory discredited by Trump's own uh, intelligence services. I don't know how many intelligence agencies. So who believes this? Donald Trump. Who put this dumb idea in his head that it wasn't the Russians, but the Ukrainians? Who benefits from Ukraine being the bad cop and not Russia? Oh, I don't know. I can think of one person. His name is Vladimir Putin. And Lindsey Graham, you are playing right into his hands. I don't know what John McCain would be saying right now if he were still alive. I hope he would not be as craven as Lindsey Graham. I hope he wouldn't be. But it's like the minute that John McCain left the Senate, Lindsey Graham... Some, some on-switch happened to Lindsey Graham. Like, he became just a, a lunatic. And again, unfortunately, he knows better. He knows better. And he's craven, and he's a, uh, opportunistic. And I cannot think of, I mean, Donald Trump's a dope, so I'm not disgusted with him because he is what he is. You can't change, you know, you can't change him. But Lindsey Graham just disgusts me. Lindsey Graham's like approaching, not approaching, he may be exceeding, Mitch McConnell level disgust on my part. I, I support that. Um, so what are you salty about? As if that didn't get you salty enough. Um, I am salty. You know, I'm going to actually defend Kellyanne Conway. Here's what I'm salty about. Okay. Um, Kellyanne Conway, let me preface by saying I've known her a very, very, very long time. And the Kellyanne Conway that I have seen uh, operating in the White House the last couple of years and also on the campaign, I, I don't personally recognize, but okay. Let me put that aside. I don't approve of her methods. I don't approve of her threatening journalists. I don't approve of her lying on TV. I don't approve of her telling a journalist that interviewed her from the Washington Examiner that she was going to go after her and explore her personal life. Don't approve of any of that. But I understand where Kellyanne Conway's frustration is. And this is based on a Washington Examiner um, transcript that came out in the last few days about uh, Kellyanne Conway having a conversation with the Washington Examiner and castigating this reporter for saying in the context of Kellyanne Conway running for, uh, potentially being in the running for being the next chief of staff of the White House, that her husband, George Conway's tweets were problem, problematic is not the word, but basically saying, you know, she has to contend with the fact that her husband's a, a never Trumper and, and, and says negative things about her, um, saying negative things about her boss, Donald Trump. I don't know why this constant sticking George Conway's opinions into stor professional stories about Kellyanne Conway is relevant. I would hope that 
Kellyanne Conway and any woman can stand on her own merits and her own two feet and not be judged in the context of what her husband is saying or doing. Um, in the same way that George Conway, with whom I happen to agree, should not be judged in the context of being Mr. Kellyanne Conway. He's an incredibly accomplished man and a lawyer in his own right. And what I don't like is this notion that we have to worry about what George Conway is saying as it relates to Kellyanne Conway's career. There are many, many, many reasons why she would be an awful chief of staff. But her husband's tweets are not one of them. And what her husband is doing is not one of them. And this whole constant psychoanalysis of the Conway marriage is fine if you're reading People magazine, which I don't think devotes time to it, um, or celebrity gossip, but it shouldn't affect your professional it shouldn't reflect on you professionally and let her be judged on how she has done her job as a professional woman an accomplished woman and not be judged by the fact that her husband is undermining her boss on Twitter every day because that's her husband. Let him do it. He has a first amendment right to do it. She has a first amendment right to say what she wants to say. Uh, I really hope that's not held against her. And I really hope that she's not held against her husband, but you know, their marriage should be left up to them. And I really wish people, women especially, would stop being judged in the context of their husbands. That's, that's, that's what I'm salty about. All right. Well, uh, this week, I love that Education Secretary Betsy DeVos was held in contempt of court recently for violating a previous order to stop collecting on loans from students who attended the now defunct Corinthian College. Uh, the judge in the case found that DeVos showed quote, minimal effort to stop collecting on the loans. And it impacted roughly 16,000 people who were um, affected by the department's continued collections. What I'm salty about is that it goes to how out of touch DeVos is and how she has no empathy for how crippling the debt is to so many students. Betsy DeVos got into this for one reason and one reason only, to turn for-profit schools into for-profit schools and to decimate public school systems. I mean, just, she, in any other administration, she'd be the worst cabinet member, but, right. you know. I mean. <laughs> in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, and she may be the one-eyed man because there's so many, <laughs> so, so many bad, bad, bad um, cabinet secretaries. I just can't wait for this administration to be done. I know. I'm so tired. Aren't you tired? I'm tired. And it's like, again, though, it's just so many of my friends, like they can't do jobs that they truly love because they need to be in a job to get out of debt. And I'm, I'm almost 30 and have been out of school for a while now. And it's, it really makes me mad. Well, and that's college. Think about people who right. incur law school debt. Exactly. I mean, I think about what it will take for my son to go, we've talked about this before, but he's seven, what it will take for my son in, in 11 years to start college. It's, pro, I'm budgeting, I mean, this is absurd. I mean, think about this number. I am budgeting $100,000 a year for him to go to college to have no debt when he gets out. That's crazy. That's right. crazy. Who's it's, got that kind of money? I mean, like, who's absurd. got that kind of money? Right. And it, it's just absurd to think about and just that the, the long-term effects that these, just um, these strategies that they're doing give to students and to kids who grow up to be adults and it just makes me really really salty and as you know there's only one type of loan um that cannot be discharged in a bankruptcy and that's student debt i don't know if you know that i so, didn't so that's the worst part is that even if you declare bankruptcy that cannot be discharged well 
And the salt pile gets higher. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what people do. I mean, honestly, I was very lucky. I had a almost full ride to college, but then in grad school, um, I had a little bit of debt, but I discharged it pretty quickly. Like I, I got rid of it pretty quickly. Uh, but that was a long time ago when college was like twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars a year, and I didn't have to pay it anyway because I had loans and sco- not loans, I had scholarships and whatever else. But um, I don't know. I have no idea how people Emily can afford to to send their kids to college now. And I keep going back to this. I did a poll. I don't know. I want to say four or five years ago uh, that showed that this is of middle class, self-reported middle class voters, right? So these are not people who are poor, um, they report themselves as being in the middle class. This is the first time I saw a poll a few years ago where they no longer think that a college education is attainable for the middle class. That's, that's really... It was possibly the most depressing data point I think I have ever, ever seen. That's really scary because again, the way out of, of poverty. poverty is... Education. I mean, I don't care what you think, and I know a lot of people are going to listen to this and say, well, you know, you don't need to go to college, and college is a ripoff, and it's a liberal brainwashing, you know. Statistically speaking, again, empirical data, not, not my feelings, statistically speaking, the ticket out of poverty is a college education. Education is the most important thing you can have to make money and to be able to afford to have a lifestyle. Not to buy planes and not to buy planes and yachts, but truly to just have a normal middle class lifestyle. And uh, that's no longer attainable, according to according to this focus group and these polls that I saw that they no longer believe that that's attainable. And that's it stuck with me. I think this poll is about five years old now. And of all the polling that I've done since then, and I look at polls virtually on a daily basis, that is that data point has stuck with me to this day. I think it's just so depressing. So Betsy DeVos, congratulations for making the situation that much harder. Uh, and that's why voting this year will be so important. 2020. <laughs> 2020. That's true. 2020. Although if you live in certain states, New Jersey, Kentucky, um, I believe Virginia, go vote. There's an election on November 5th. Just vote. I don't care who you vote for. Just turn out to vote. And that's actually something I'm going to be focused on a lot next year. I am going to... Uh, do everything I can to mobilize as many people as possible to register and to vote because the more people vote, the better off they are. Truth. All right. All right. Have a great weekend, everybody.